Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So when asked to speak about the existence of God and the question of does God exist, I'm naturally going to turn to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So this is what I specialize in, Aquinas' philosophical thought, and particularly his philosophical thought on the existence of God. And Aquinas' name is almost synonymous with attempts at proving God's existence. He's not the only philosopher theologian to do that, but he's certainly one of the most popular ones. And when Aquinas gets into demonstrations of God's existence, such as is in the Contra Gentiles, or the very famous, infamous now, Five Ways of the Summatiologiae, he precedes these demonstrations with a consideration of the logic of demonstration. What is the logic of demonstration, and what is the nature of a scientific demonstration? So a lot of people, when they read the Five Ways, they go straight to question two, um, article three where he presents the five ways. A lot of people don't read the initial articles before that, where he sets out the logic of demonstration. And Thomas, when he's demonstrating God's existence, he has a very uh, explicit logical framework in mind. It's a framework adopted from Aristotle's prior and posterior analytics. Um, for Aquinas, a demonstration is always, go always going to be in the form of a syllogism. And a syllogism, um, if you still know what it is, it's just a basic argument form that Aristotle sort of discovered. Uh, so an example is, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So if we can say some sort of truth about what it is to be a man, and we can say that Socrates is a man, then the truth that we can state about what it is to be a man is applicable to Socrates. In that syllogism, there is what's called the middle term. So all men are mortal, Socrates is a man. Man, men is the middle term. And that's what unites Socrates with mortality in the conclusion. Now, in a scientific syllogism, Aristotle reasoned that the middle term has to tell us something about the nature of the subject of the conclusion. In this case, Socrates. The middle term tells us something about the subject that we're making a demonstration of. So all men are mortal, Socrates is a man. So that middle term tells us something about Socrates. The only problem when it comes to the existence of God is we don't even know whether God exists yet. So how can we use these kinds of demonstrations if we don't even know that the subject of our conclusion exists? So what Aristotle and Thomas do here is they do the classic philosopher's thing. They divide and conquer. Okay, they say demonstration is taken in two ways. In one way, we have that very explicit scientific demonstration. In another way, we have a different kind of demonstration no less scientific, but doesn't tell us as much as the scientific demonstration. So in that Socrates syllogism, the Socrates syllogism tells us why Socrates is mortal. Okay? It doesn't just tell us that Socrates is mortal, but it tells us why. He is mortal because he's a man, and men are the kinds of things that are mortal. Mortality is a feature of being a man. So we not only know that Socrates is mortal, but we know why. But there are other kinds of demonstrations that tell us that something is the case. And these, in the technical, uh, logical vocabulary of Thomas and Aristotle, these were called quia demonstrations. For those of you who have any Latin, 
Quia is just the Latin word for because. Okay, they just tell you that something is the case. They demonstrate the fact. And here's a very famous example from Aristotle. Okay, this is from Aristotle's Posterior Analytics. Uh, whatever does not twinkle is near. The planets do not twinkle, therefore the planets are near. Okay, whatever doesn't twinkle is near. The planets don't twinkle, and so the planets aren't near. What this demonstration does is it takes that middle term, twinkling, okay? And that middle term, twinkling, it doesn't tell us something about the planets. It tells us something about an effect or lack thereof with the planets. So it doesn't tell us something about the nature of the planets, okay? So it doesn't tell us that they are near. <coughs> twinkling tells us something about an effect of the planets, the fact that the planets don't twinkle. So it infers from that effect to something about the cause of that effect, i.e., that the planets are near precisely because they don't twinkle. So the nearness of the planets is inferred from their effect, their lack of twinkle. And it's this kind of demonstration then, this queer demonstration, that Aquinas is going to use to establish the existence of God. It's that kind of demonstration which reasons from an effect to a cause, which will get us to some sort of primary cause of all that is. Well, with that in place, okay, that's all fine. That's just logic and the logic of demonstration. What sort of an effect are we going to go after? What are we going to look for in order to reason from that to a primary cause of all that is? In two of his works, in the De Potentia Dei, which was a set of kind of disputed questions, it was, a, it was basically a semester of disputed questions or kind of teaching at the University of Paris. That, well, not actually Paris, it was elsewhere that Aquinas gave in the De Potentia Dei and in the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas points out that in the history of philosophy, there was a movement towards recognizing a primary cause of all that is uh, until we get to a primary cause that creates ex nihilo. It wasn't until philosophers started realizing that there are certain features of things without which they would be precisely nothing. So things have features, certain properties, which if they didn't have, they just would not exist. And Aquinas says it's only when these philosophers recognize that things have what he calls essay, or the act of existence, that unless things had that, they simply would not be. So the act of existence, and we can get into that in the question time, how Aquinas establishes, establishes that. The act of existence is a feature that things have, which they don't have essentially, but if they didn't have it, they simply would not be. And that's the effect then. The act of existence, the very existence of things, is going to be the effect which is going to launch that queer demonstration for the existence of God. So Aquinas is going to interrogate the very existence of things, and from that, that will springboard him into that demonstration where we can get to a primary cause of existence uh, so that nothing is unless it is caused by that primary cause. That's how he's setting up the argument, and now we um, are going to get into it, basically. So that's the logical framework. That's the hardest part of this lecture, okay? I was told to pitch it to people who are interested and deeply into it. I've got one of my PhD students here. I'm a master's student as well. But also to pitch it to non-specialists. That's the hardest bit, okay? So can relax now, okay? We can just get into the exciting stuff. Causal series. What Thomas is going to do, he's considering effects, right? And the nature of an effect is that it is derived from and it's dependent upon its cause. That's the nature of an effect. So he's definitely not a follower of Hume. Well, he couldn't be. Hume was several centuries later. He's dead by then, so he couldn't follow Hume. But he's definitely not a Humean. 
when it comes to causality. An effect is derived from and is dependent upon its cause. And we can easily generate causal series from that. So we can have an effect, you know, a son who's derived from his cause, this father who's derived from his cause, his father and his cause, and so on. And so we start just generating these causal series, you know, of causes and effects. Now, Aquinas wasn't the first one to point this out. The Islamic philosopher Avicenna really sort of, you know, focused heavily on this, that there are two <coughs> kinds of causal series that we can distinguish. We can distinguish between two types of causal series. And given the features of those causal series, one of them can be infinite, and that's fine. But the other is necessarily finite. It has to have some sort of primary cause, otherwise we lose the sort of causal series that it is. So we have two types of causal series depending on the role that causality plays in the series. And one of them, given its nature, could be infinite, and the other is necessarily finite. And Aquinas interrogates these two types of causal series, and he argues that existence is a type of causality in the second type of causal series, uh, and so demands a primary cause for it. We're going to interrogate these causal series and see what they're like. This is what we're going to have a look at. So the first type of causal series is an accidentally ordered causal series, or in Aquinas' terminology, a per accident ordered series. The terminology of accidentally ordered, that's later. That comes from Scotus. Aquinas would have used the terminology of a per accident ordered series. And in this series, in an accidentally ordered series, the members of the series do not possess the causality of the series essentially, or do possess the causality of the series essentially. Okay, that was a full part. You can go and edit that out in the report. Okay, Thomas Joseph White would kill me if you heard that. Right? <laughs> so, in an accidentally ordered series, the members of the series possess the causality of the series essentially. The common example that is given is a father produces a son who produces a son. Okay, a father produces a son who produces a son. So Peter follows James and James follows John. Okay, we've got Peter, James, and John. Peter's a follower of James. There they are there. There's Peter and there's James. Okay, he's holding James's hand. But then James grows up and produces John. So there's Peter with the fishing rod, grandfather Peter. There's James, the father now. And there's the grandson, John. Now, why is it that these members of that series can father children? The causality of the series is that of fatherhood, paternity, begetting. That's the causality involved. That's what makes it the sort of causal series that it is. So why is it that each member can generate a son? Right. What is the relation of Peter, the grandfather, to the grandson? Is Peter the cause of the grandson? Did Peter father the grandson? No, he didn't. James fathered the grandson. John. Peter follows James, and James follows John. Peter could go off and die before James fathers John, and yet James could grow up and still father John, therefore continuing on the series. Well, the medieval philosophers and theologians and the Islamic philosophers, they thought, well, that's interesting, because that says something about the kind of causal series that we have. If the members of the causal series have the causality of the series essentially, in virtue of what they are, then they're not dependent on previous members to continue on the series. So James, there he is there in the red jumper, okay, his father is Peter. He doesn't need Peter's help to father John. He doesn't need his father's help to give his father a grandson. That would just be weird, okay? That's not how it works. James has everything in himself to be able to father his own child without Peter's help. Once Peter follows 
James, Peter can just drop out of the series. Have we all heard of wetting the baby's head? I know we have some you know, Dominicans in here on baptism, but that's not what we're referring to. Wetting the baby's head is a great Irish tradition, or it might just be a Belfast tradition. When you have a child, you go off and you have a drink, and that's wetting the baby's head. That's your celebration. Okay. Now imagine Peter uh, decides to engage in that august of traditions of wetting the baby's head. And, you know, so he has James. James is born, recovery in the hospital. Peter decides, going to go out and have a drink, celebrate. He dies. Some accident happens and he dies. Peter's dead. He's not in the series anymore. But James is still there. Despite the fact that Peter's not there anymore, James can still grow up and father a child, which means the causality in the series is something that James has, not as dependent upon Peter, his father, it's a causality that he has in himself. Simply in virtue of being a biologically functioning male, he can exercise that causality of paternity. So in accidentally ordered series, the members of the series have the causality of the series in themselves, and so long as you have any member of the series, it can continue on. Later members of the series are not dependent on more remote members of the series. And see these types of series, the medievals granted that they could go to infinity. You don't need a first cause here, okay? Just because there is a father for every man, uh, just because every man has a father, doesn't mean there's a father for all men, okay? As long as you just have an immediately succeeding cause, the series continues. At any one point, it's actually finite, but potentially infinite. So one man follows his son, he drops out, he follows his son, he drops out, and so on, and so on, and so on. There's no issue there with that being infinite. But contrast that with essentially ordered series. In essentially ordered series, the exact opposite is the case. Accidentally ordered series, the members of the series possess the causality of the series, essentially. So Peter, James, and John have paternity, the ability to follow a child, in virtue of what they are, biologically functioning males. By contrast, in essentially ordered series, the members of the series do not possess the causality of the series, essentially. They don't have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. Rather, they participate in the causality of the series. It's a derived causality. So the common example which is offered, and Aquinas offers it in the first way of the five ways, um, is the mental agent moves the hand to move the stick to move the stone. So a mental agent moves his hand to move the stick to move the stone. I put up the golf player here because we're academics, okay? And we have to play golf. That's when I got tenure, I bought golf clubs. I bought golf clubs and got motorbike lessons when I got tenure. That was the plan. So the golf player moves his hands to swing the club to hit the ball. The hands, the club and the ball, or the hand, the stick and the stone, they don't have motion in virtue of what they are. They don't have motion in virtue of being hands, sticks and stones. They can be hands, sticks and stones and be immobile. Okay, they can be themselves without the motion of the series. Okay, so they don't have the motion of the series essentially in virtue of what they are. They are dependent on something to induce motion to them. Okay, and that's something which induces motion to them, the mental agent in this case, is that in which they participate for their motion. So the hand, the stick and the stone participate in the causal activity of the mental agent for their motion. Should there be no 
causal activity of the mental agent, then the hand sticking stone would be immobile unless some other, you know, moving cause came to move them. The point being that precisely because they lack the causality of the series in virtue of what they are, they are dependent on something which has the causality of the series in virtue of what it is. Because a mental agent is able to originate motion. That's just what it is to be a mental agent, to be able to originate motion. You can go to the golf course and just decide to not balls about, okay? Just out of whimsy. You can just say, I'm just gonna go and you know hit these balls, right? Um, but the hand sticking stone may derive that motion from the mental agent. Another example outside of conscious scenarios is that the fire <coughs> heats the pot to heat the contents of the pot. So the fire heats the pot to heat the contents of the pot. The pot and its contents don't have the, the heat of the fire in virtue of what they are. Okay, so they don't have heat in virtue of what they are. They need something to heat them. And fire has heat or is able to give heat in virtue of what it is. That's just something that fire does, given it what it is. So you bring the pot and its contents to the fire, and the pot and the contents are heated. And this tells us something about it, what it is to be a primary cause in such series. Because in the accidentally ordered series, the father-son series, the first cause is just the first one that you have there, and then everything just comes after it. Well, in this sort of series, the primary cause is not simply the first cause. The <coughs> primary cause is that within which the causality of the series is possessed essentially. That which has the causality of the series in virtue of what it is. The mental agent has the motive causality in virtue of being a mental agent. Fire has heat simply in virtue of being fire. And then the members of the series don't have the, that causality essentially. They participate in the causality of the primary cause. So that's what it is to be a primary cause. It's not just to be the first among many, it's to be that on which things depend for their causality, that on which things participate for their causality. So the moon, the, uh, the atmosphere, the earth, they all participate in, the, in illumination, which is granted by the light of the sun. And the sun then is something which just, given what it is, illuminates, okay? And then, you know, the, the moon and, you know, the atmosphere and the earth, they're not self-illuminating. They draw their illumination then from the sun. They participate in that. Um, well, here's a question. What about the infinity of these series? Can either of these series be infinite? What is it to be an infinite series? Well, an infinite series is one which has kind of uh, no terminus, okay? No end to it. It doesn't have a terminus. In the case of causality, it's a, it's a series without a primary or a first cause. Now, the medievals granted that um, accidentally ordered series, like the Fathers and Sons series, they could, in principle, be without a first. You could just have an infinite such series, okay? And that's no problem because each prior member is causing the other one. Causality is explained in the series. That's fine. It may be, in fact, <coughs> finite. It just may, in fact, be finite, but it could be infinite, in principle. It could be infinite. But the medievals uh, argued that when it comes to essentially ordered series, this was uh, what Aquinas pointed out, in essentially ordered series, the members of the series participate in the causality of the primary cause in order to possess their own causality. So were there not a primary cause in that series, there would be no causal series. The hand, the stick, and the stone would be motionless unless there was some sort of agent which granted motion to them. 
the hands, the golf club, and the golf ball would just be immobile unless there was some source of motion which itself contained the causality of motion and was able to impart it, was able to originate the motion. So unless there is a primary cause of such series, you don't have a causal series. And what that says then is that such series can't be without primary causes. They can't be causal series without a primary cause, which essentially possesses that causality. Because without that, there's nothing in which those things can participate for their causality. Without a source of motion, there is nothing in which the hand, the stick, and stone can participate for their motion. So essentially ordered series can't be finite. Accidentally ordered series can be finite. Oh, sorry, essentially ordered series can't be infinite. Accidentally ordered series can. Okay, right. Well, that just tells us about the metaphysics of causation and causality and causal series. Where do we go from there? Well, let's think about the existence of things. Existence, as we were sort of saying at the start when we were setting up the logical <coughs> framework, existence is a feature that things have, but they don't possess essentially. So existence, the actuality of existence, is some feature that we have without which we would be nothing, uh, we would be non-beings, uh, but we don't have it essentially. I don't essentially exist. I don't exist in virtue of being a man because I was born and I will die. It's not being a man which makes me exist, it's something else, okay? So I have existence, but I don't have it in virtue of what I am. Similarly for, these are elements here, periodic table of elements. There's people, men and women there, there's planets, there's stars, there's galaxies, all the rest. All these things exist, but they don't exist in virtue of what they are. Their essences are not identical to their existence. There's distinction between essence and existence in these things. Well, that's interesting. These things have existence, but they don't have it in virtue of what they are. And existence is that without which they would be nothing. So existence is a causal feature of things. Is existence a causal feature of things like the causality of paternity in the Fathers and Sons series? Or is it like the motion in the Mental Age Enhanced Stick Stone series? In other words, is existence a causal feature of things in an accidentally ordered series, in which case you can have an infinite series, or in an essentially ordered series, in which case we need a primary cause, okay? Otherwise you wouldn't have such a causal series. Well, the way in which we determine this is that a causal property is located within an accidentally ordered series if it's a property possessed essentially by the members of the series. So uh, the fathers and sons, Peter, James, and John, they possess the causality of paternity in virtue of what they are, being biologically functioning males. So it's a causal feature of accidentally ordered series that things possess that causality simply in virtue of what they are. By contrast, it's a causal feature of essentially ordered series if the members possess that causality not in virtue of what they are, okay? If they don't possess it essentially. Hands, sticks, and stones can remain hands, sticks, and stones without motion. You can take the motion away and they're still safe <laughs> where they are. So the motion that they have, is they don't have in virtue of being hands, sticks, and stones. It's derived. Well, given that there is this distinction between essence and existence, that things don't have existence essentially, okay? I don't have existence in virtue of being what I am. I just happen to have it. Existence is a causal feature not located in accidentally ordered series, the way paternity is with Peter, James, and John, but it's a causal feature located in essentially ordered series, the way the hand, the stick, and the stone possess motion. 
or the pot and the contents of the pot possess heat. That being the case, if there is not a primary cause of existence which possesses existence essentially in virtue of what it is, things which have existence wouldn't have it. Okay? In the same way that the hand stick and the stone would not have motion unless you have a primary <coughs> cause which essentially has motion and can originate it, the mental agent, they wouldn't have motion unless they participated in that causality. Things which exist would not have existence unless they participated in the causality of a primary cause which has existence essentially. And this is what Aquinas calls pure existence itself. There must be some primary cause whose essence is its existence in which things participate uh, in order to exist. So things which don't have existence essentially participate in this primary cause, which is just pure existence, its essence is its existence, otherwise they would not be. So they're like the hand, the stick, and the stone in relation to the mental agent, or the pot and the contents in relation to the fire, or the moon, the atmosphere, and the earth in relation to the sun. Were there not such a primary cause, they just wouldn't have that causality, that causality being existence, i.e. they would not be. So there's a primary cause of anything which in any way exists precisely because its essence is just existence itself. So anything which in any way has existence derives its existence from pure existence itself. Nothing which has its existence, um, nothing which has its existence is not caused by this. So this is a single unique cause of all that has existence, making use of nothing other than its own resources to grant existence to things and this is typically what all understand God to be. So this is the Aquinas' demonstration of God's existence that you find throughout all his works. I've been through every single one of his demonstrations, and this is the common nature of those demonstrations. Every one of the five ways um, can be read in this way. But we're not done yet. For those who are interested in moving things further, um, we've just done some crazy philosophical metaphysical reasoning there, okay? Um, Thomas is writing in the 13th century. He's making use of Islamic philosophers like Avicenna, pagan philosophers like Aristotle, and so on and so forth. And he comes to a conception of the primary cause as pure existence itself. Okay, and there's a lot more to be said about that. You know, I've written two books on this issue and stuff, and there's just a lot of literature on it. Now, we get that conception of the divine as pure existence in the book of Exodus as he who is. Whenever Moses is speaking to God and God's telling Moses, you know, to go back to Egypt and say that, you know, the God, you know, the, the God of Hebrews, you know, sent them, okay? Um, Moses says, well, look, there's lots of gods in Egypt. How will they know it's you? And, you know, God says, you know, well, I am who I am. God is he who is, okay? That's unique um, to, the, uh, to Israel's conception of God. There's no known historical antecedent to that. Um, but it's presented in Exodus without that heavy metaphysical reasoning that we've kind of just done. So here's the existential question. And you don't have to deal with this, but I think it's an interesting one. And the chapter of my book where I wrote about this, I just left it at this. But here's the interesting existential question. Do we take it as a coincidence that without no known historical antecedent, some author of the book of Exodus, who wasn't a philosopher, didn't have any philosophical ability, comes upon a conception of God with no known historical sort of influence, comes upon a conception of God which just happens to be in accord with that metaphysical reasoning for a primary cause giving us pure existence itself. Is that a coincidence 
okay, separation of several thousand years, that they come upon that conception, or should we take seriously the possibility that there was some revelation to somebody by this primary cause, and that's worked its way into the scriptural tradition? So I'm going to leave you with that existential question at the end. That's what I have for you. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks very much, Gavin. Uh, we have time for questions now, so I suppose I'll just invite Gavin up to anyone who has questions. Just yeah, put your hand up and uh, we'll yeah, plenty of time for questions. Yeah, great. So. Yeah, go on. There. Something I've always thought about. I just wondered, do we have good reason to believe that St. Thomas didn't have uh, the Old Testament thing you know, in mind that I am? Do we have good reason to believe he didn't have that in mind when he was writing? Oh, he was certainly aware of it. Yeah, I think in one of, in the same contra, <coughs> contra question too, he quotes, you know, um, uh, you know, God says he, you know, I am who I am. Yeah, that was that. I mean, certainly he was aware of that. Yeah. So, what does that entail? Yeah, yeah, at no point does that enter into the reasoning. Um, so, I mean, that could well have been. So, God, as he who is, could easily have been in mind. Um, what he's going to have for dinner could be in mind. Um, his prayer service later on, all that could be in his mind. But the actual reasoning, you know, that he puts down doesn't involve any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Hunter. Does Aquinas allow for any mediating principle that could account for essay in the thing? Because in, in, in the causal reasoning, Aquinas often use, uses light to speak about the causal series order per, per se. And you could talk about how the moon's illumination can illuminate the atmosphere. Yeah. The moon receives its light from the sun. So <laughs> in that sense, could, could Aquinas hold to any mediating principle that could account for essay in the thing, or is it God directly? Yeah, so when it comes to essay, the act of existence, that has to be direct, Thomas holds. Because once something receives the act of existence, it doesn't reflect it the way the moon does, it simply exists. Okay, so there's no mediator for the act of existence. All creatures can do is manipulate material conditions to dispose them so something new comes into existence, but the act of existence is directly from God. Yeah. But creatures can't reflect existence the way the moon does. No. Yeah. Yeah. Robert. Um, I'm just wondering how the pair accident series interacts with the essential series. Mm. So in the example that you give, uh, you've got this uh, grandfather, father, etc., mm -hmm. and they have within themselves um, uh, the ability to uh, generate. But they themselves uh, don't have essence Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to me that that surely then has to interact in some way with the essential series. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of wondering if there's yeah. on that. Can I use the board? Yeah. We're in Ireland, the new screen shock. Right. So, um, so we have the Praxin series. So we have the father producing the son, producing the son, right? And let's just bracket that. That's Praxin series dash, right? And then we could have maybe, you know, this could generate a different Praxin series. Two, and then that could generate per accidents series three. Okay? Now, because Thomas has latched on to a type of causal feature that everything has, that is the actuality of existence, every member of this series and every member of this series and every member of this series falls under the umbrella of existence. 
as a causal feature. And so every member of every per accident series and every per se series, because <coughs> the members have existence but don't have it essentially, are part of one big per se causal series, which reduces to God as a primary cause, that which is existence itself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's in locating a kind of causality without which a thing would not be that allows this grand per se series that incorporates every strand of causality. What do you think of that? Um, yeah, so I suppose you're sort of saying that effectively uh, you have to, there's a sort of puzzle that effectively is in some ways to the, the whole thing that requires us per se series to take precedence of something. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I kind of think, I was just trying to think conceptually, could I imagine anything uh, that, uh, that that what you just said there wouldn't be true of and having to take precedence of that? That's the whole point of. Of the distinction between essence and existence yeah. and how Thomas establishes it. Yeah. Do you want me to get into that, ladies and gentlemen? Yes. Right. So remember, it all depends on essence existence being distinct. Here's the question: Why is it that only God is his essence is identical to his existence? Could there not be other things whose essences are identical to their existence? Why is it God, then everything else, essence, existence, distinction? And that's what he needs, brother, isn't it? Everything else other than God has to have distinction of essence and existence. And so, this is how Thomas establishes this. Right. Yeah, when Thomas. Sorry? Yeah, that'd be white chalk. Yes. You prefer white? Okay. Thank you. When Thomas was in his early 30s, studying for a doctorate in theology, the equivalent of a doctorate in theology. The young Dominican brothers at Saint-Jacques, where Thomas was staying to do, become a master in theology, couldn't understand philosophy and metaphysics. So they came to brother Thomas, because they couldn't go to Albert the Great, because you know he was the master. So they came to the young Thomas, and they asked him, could you explain metaphysics to us? So he wrote them a treatise of metaphysics called De Ante Essentia which is one of the greatest works of metaphysics ever written in his 30s. Okay, first of all, I'm, I'm gonna be 40 in a few weeks, okay? So he wrote the De Ante and Essentia, and in chapter four, he makes this distinction between essence and existence, and he gives this demonstration of God's existence. How does he do it? First of all, he says, well, look, consider, whatever doesn't enter into the understanding of an essence or a quiddity, a quiddity is just an essence, whatever doesn't enter into the understanding of that, is distinct from it and composed with it from without. Because in order to understand an essence, you need to understand the components of the essence. And so if there's something about the essence that doesn't enter into your understanding of it, it's distinct from it. But you can understand any essence without understanding its existence. So essence and existence are distinct. Now on my reading of that, have we all heard of Ed Fieser? Some of us have. On my reading of that, actually, on Ed Fieser's reading of that, my reading is wrong, but he came after me, okay, in reading it, so, you know, he has to sort of do the donkey work on my hand wrong. On my reading of that, what Thomas just shows there is that it's one thing to understand the essence of a thing, it's another thing to understand its existence. It's not until the next stage, okay, where Thomas shows that everything <coughs> other than one unique instance is subject to essence, existence, distinction. And this is your point, brother, this is where he shows that there could only be one thing in which essence and existence are identical, everything else subject to distinction of essence and existence. This is how he does it. Entertain the hypothesis of something whose essence is its existence. Just entertain that hypothesis 
You don't have to entertain it as a reality. You're just thinking of the concept of it. Something that is pure existence. Okay, just entertain that hypothesis. Something whose essence is its existence. We don't know yet that it exists, although we've, all, we've seen the demonstration, but just, you know, forget the last half hour or so, okay? Pure existence. Could it be multiplied? Could you have more than one pure existences, things in which essence and existence are identical? Thomas thinks, well, how do we multiply things? We can multiply things the way a genus is multiplied into its species. The way in which we do this, we add some difference. Okay, you have a genus animal, you have the species human, dog, cat. I don't like saying cats or animals because they're demonic, okay? Right? Well, dogs are all, right? Well, you got the genus and you got the species, human, dog, cat. The way in which we differentiate the genus is we add some sort of feature to the genus which specifies it. Humans are rational animals. Dogs are canine animals. Cats are feline, demonic animals, right? The differentiating feature is outside of the genus added to it, specifies the genus. Now the question is, could pure existence be multiplied in the way that a genus is multiplied? Think about that. Could be multiplied the way a genus is? Well, Thomas says no, because the difference which is added to the genus to multiply it into its species is outside the genus. The genus we're thinking of is pure existence. What's outside of existence? What's nothing. Nothing is outside of existence, so there's no differentiating feature that could be used to specify the genus. Next, he says, a species can be multiplied into individuals. Oh, oh, that's gone, right? So we have the species human multiplied into Peter, James, and John, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. All of you lovely people here, right? The species human is realized in all of us. Why is that? Because we add matter to the species. We have the species humanity, and it is realized in this chunk of matter, which came into existence on the 12th of April, 1983. We've all calculated now, aren't we? Yeah, okay. And your chunks of matter, which came into existence, okay? The human species came into existence in you in that particular chunk of matter. The chunk of matter, when added to the species, produces the individuals. But the chunk of matter is outside the species once again. The matter is not part of the species. Okay? So we're being asked, is pure existence multiplied in this way? Thomas says no, because again, you have some principle which is added, would be added to it to multiply it. It's pure existence. There's nothing outside of it which could multiply it. Thomas thinks his job is done there, okay? He's 30 years old, he's writing for his brothers, he's not being exhausted about it, right? The principle here is that in order to multiply something, in order to multiply x, you need to have some sort of feature or principle to which x is subject, which will multiply it. You need something independent of the thing which, when added to it, multiplies it. Now the thing in question here is pure existence. There is nothing outside of it to which it stands as subject for multiplication. So there is no principle outside of it to which it stands in potency by which it could be multiplied. 
That then means that if there is something that's pure existence, there can at most be one <coughs> and only one. It is unique. It's not the only instance of pure existence. It's not the only instance of divinity. It just is the unique thing that is pure existence. But we're not done there yet because we were just entertaining this as a hypothesis. What has Thomas established? That pure existence, regardless of whether it exists, it's a feature of it that it is one and unique. Now, if we have a proof for it, that would be great. But we know that given its nature, it's one and unique. So anything which isn't one and unique isn't this. Anything which is not one and unique is not something in which essence and existence are identical. So anything which is not one and unique is a thing in which essence and existence are distinct. So we only have pure existence or things in which essence and existence are identical. Okay, so everything other than pure existence are things in which essence and existence are identical. So, brother, to your point, everything other than pure existence is something which has existence as a causal feature and is part of a per se causal series of which existence is the feature calling for a primary cause, which is pure existence. Woo! <laughs> Carlo. All right, so it seems to me that if you were to start multiplication argument establish the real distinction of each of the individual members in the per accident series mm -hmm. seeing that they're existential zeros with regard to essay or existence we can immediately reason to a pure essay that's outside of the bubble of the members of the series that are really distinct in their essence and existence so and then that raises the question well why even entertain the the series of the essentially ordered series when you really don't need it if you start with this starting point. Yeah, I, I agree. I grant that it's sort of intuitive that, you know, if everything was just an essence existence composite such that they have existence from without, such that there would be nothing, uh, so that what grants them existence can't be an essence existence composite. I agree that's very intuitive, so that we need something which is pure existence. So, yes, that's intuitive. I just don't think it's philosophically exact. I think that I, I know John Canassis thinks like we can make the inference from essence existence distinction to pure existence. Yeah, the paralleled, you know, gives us the per se. But I, I seriously disagree with him. I, I think it needs to be made more philosophically exact. You have to spell out the steps on how you get to pure existence. So I, I just think it, it can't be based on an intuition, just seeing that it is the case. I think you have to go through the per se ordered series to show that you know um, there, there's an absurdity or a contradiction with regard to causality unless we get the something which is per se existent. Yeah. Have you heard of a man called John Pantrasek? He was educated in the early 20th century he died. Uh, he had a work called The Existence of God, principally a Kohlistic approach. Yeah. And uh, he argues that uh, probably it's related to if, if things are, if things are, uh, there's no distinction between their essence and existence, mm -hmm. then the uh, they're necessarily infinite themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this cannot possibly be because mm -hmm. our experience tells us mm -hmm. they're finite. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I know that's a shortened. That's where you're coming in with the exactness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I think that's part and parcel of the same sort of intuition. Yeah. You know, the, the insight there is that if they're not composed of essence and existence, if their essence is their existence, there's no boundary to their existence. The only thing that binds their existence is nothing, so the yeah. infinite, uh, which is, you know, contrary to fact, so it can't be infinite, so we, that points in the direction of a cause, which is your existence. That's kind of part of the same intuition, I think, yeah. in the sense that. So you intuit the meaning of philosophical development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it, it needs to be spelled out quite exactly, I think. Yeah. <coughs> so, up at the back, yeah, hi, yeah. Does the essence of being human and this, the human species not kind of coexist? So, go on. Yeah, uh, that's my question. What do you mean by that? Just what I said, does, does <laughs> I don't see this impossibility of the essence of being human being at odds with. Species. I don't see how the so the, the, the essence of being human is the species. Yeah. That that's what the human essence is. It's the species. Yeah. So you are a particular instance of the human species. That's your essence. An, an individual instance. But don't you're suggesting that only the one uh, has this ability to exist. So in its, in its essence. Yeah. Only something which is pure existence. Not all of us here in this room exist. We don't exist in virtue of what we are, but in existing we have an essence. So essences exist, but they don't exist in virtue of being essences. There's lots of essences which don't exist. And if we, just another question, mm -hmm. if we put a, a male and female mm -hmm. of the human species on an island mm -hmm. with no other input, they will multiply. Yeah, well, you know, sort of all different circumstances permitting, but yeah, there's the possibility of multiplication there. Yeah. But I thought you suggested, you know, if I didn't misunderstand, that for this multiplication we need something outside mm -hmm. the individuals. Yeah, yeah, you need matter. So you need the addition of matter. So if a man and a woman, you know, procreate, there needs to be matter in order for a new being to they come in. Need to eat. Yes, cell division, yeah. That's how you have material multiplication. The species can only be realized in distinct chunks of matter. So there will be something in addition to the species, which is the matter that it needs. But the, the matter for reproduction comes of the species. Initially, um, it comes from, well, say, you know, some of the matter from the male, a lot of the matter from the female, which has to be added to by extrinsic matter that, you know, she takes in and then becomes part of her substance and is passed on. So there is matter basically from the world which enables the species to become present in the world. But that matter is not identical to the species itself. But it assimilates and becomes a species. Yeah, it becomes part it becomes part of the individual of the species. So this particular chunk of, chunk of matter here isn't identical to the species human, because then I would be humanity and nothing else could be humanity. You are I am a human, I'm not humanity. Because well, the only one left in the world is humanity. Well, that, that wouldn't be the case, because again, I would be an instance of humanity. I would be one particular instance of the species human. Any other questions? Yeah, over here. Yeah, uh, one way that I understand the difference between essence and existence is through the phrasing of the analogy of being. I know that's not a phrasing that Aquinas uses directly. Mm -hmm. 
comes in later from the master Hirokazu Karana and becomes very famous in the 20th century, uh, would you say that Aquinas would accept this understanding of being as being analogous in terms of the uh, distinction between essence and existence? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thomas, okay, has two types of analogy, the analogy of uh, proportion and the analogy of attribution. So um, the analogy of proportion is that you have an analogous notion that has a primary instance and secondary instances. So can I use the board? Yeah. Right. So, right. So let's take a term health. This is an analogous term, okay? <coughs> Call out some things that are healthy. Examples, food. Food, a diet. Take a diet, yeah? Healthy diet? Medicine? Exercise, yes. <coughs> now we're missing something, because a diet is just stuff. Medicine is just stuff. Exercise is just an activity. What are these all healthy for? A subject. We have a subject of health. This is what is primarily healthy, and these are only healthy insofar as they relate to the subject. So the primary analogate of health is the subject, and these are only healthy by relation to the subject. And Aristotle comes in and he says when it comes to being, the primary analogate is substance, and the secondary is accidents. When it comes to the analogy of being, right, substance and accidents, Aquinas holds that its substances are things which exist and have an essence. So the primary analogy of being are our essence existence composites, and these accidents are unable to exist because they subsist in a substance and they draw upon the existence of the substance. So the unity of being is found in the act of existence, which is differentiated into the various essences that possess it under various accidents. So no doubt Thomas does um, you know, endorse the analogy of proportion. And then the other types of analogies, which Cagetan is very rigorous about, he does have those there, but they're not as big a deal as you point out. Uh, the reason being is because Scotus and the Franciscans made a big deal in rejecting analogy. And so Cagetan and Dominicans come and say, well, hold on a minute. And then they beat it up a bit. Any other questions? Is it usually this side then? Yes? Another one. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I, don't, I just want a short answer. I, I don't know if it's because of the context we're in. Mm -hmm. uh, the relationship between form and the act of existence. Beautiful. Yes. I can get into that if you want. Yeah, I just want to get some clarity in my own mind about it. Do you want me to get into that? Yeah. Okay. Form and what? Between form and matter. Form and the act of existence. Form and the act of existence. Sorry. I'll need to bring matter into this. Yeah. Okay. Right. <coughs> right. The thing that exists is a substance. We are substances, elements are substances, all the rest. Right? A substance is composed of matter and form. Prime matter is matter without any form. Once it receives a form, we have a substance. So the form is what actualizes the potentiality of the matter. Right now, the substance has an act of existence. <coughs> because form actualizes the potentiality of matter, 
form itself has no actuality unless it participates in the actuality of existence. So what happens here is that form <coughs> in composing with matter gives a fitting subject for the reception of existence. So a thing has existence through its form. As Thomas says, form of that essay way. Form gives the act of existence to the thing. So it's through the form that existence is conveyed to the matter form composite. And, and that's the relation of existence to form. Now there's a lot that can be done with that. Um, back in November in the States, I gave a talk on this, and using this, I argued that we can um, affirm, philosophically speaking, life after death of the person. Okay, that, that talk is up on YouTube. Um, but uh, using this, we can affirm post-mortem survival. So that's another one for another day. Okay, if you want to hear about that, come to main news in April for the science and divine providence. I'll be giving that talk. Yeah, um, suppose there's no true distinction between the accidental and essential different causal series. I mean, I suppose somebody didn't find that intuitive. There's really just one kind of causal series, and suppose it's the accidental kind. Mm -hmm. um, I think like Mackey actually thinks this. Mm -hmm. Is there a, is it at least fair to say that this this proof is um, predicated on a certain theory of causality then? Oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely. And then, so then, what would you have to say to Mackey's point of view? Yeah. So I think I mean I think Mackey's essentially is the most human uh, when it comes to causality. He's, a, he's adopted a humane account of um, something like if we can't have constant conjunction or regularity, we need conditions. I mean, he develops the conditionality analysis of causality, whereby what causality signifies is a relation between two events. The event of the brick hitting the window brings about the event of the window smashing. Whereas this account of causality is that causality is a relation between two substances. The substance A depends on substance B for actuality. Um, there's some kind of actuality, you know, by which you know the effect comes about, and so that would be a Pollers-based causality. So I would just get into a wrestling match with Mackey over that. I think his metaphysics of causality is flawed because of human presuppositions about. Do you want to get into those human presuppositions? Yeah, maybe a little bit. So I'm not exactly allergic to the substance powers uh, view of things, but it does seem to me like at least you could preserve the the human uh, constant connection. Um, I, I don't think those are necessarily as, as uh, dichotomous um, as yeah. you maybe portray them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, the, the thought is just like a suppose you take the golf club and all that. Yeah. I can tell the entire story again in terms mm -hmm. of one thing happening after another without mm -hmm. taking on the simultaneous causation, which is I think what you're getting at. As... Not, oh no, I'm not getting on simultaneous causation. Okay. That's Definitely not. Yeah. But yeah, go on. Sorry. No, this is your Q and A. <laughs> but yeah, so I take that. Yeah. So a human could very easily you know, tell the same story. And so the difference lies at the different metaphysics of causation. Okay, which metaphysics is the right one? And this is why I think there's a problem with Hume. It has nothing to do with his actual what he says about causality. It's his empiricism, which is the problem here. Hume holds that basically when we know something, we have the object, it produces impressions. Okay, so we're on this side, produces impressions, which produces ideas, and they're simple, and then they become complex. Okay, so this is Hume's account. Everything mental is on this side. Okay, so this is the sort of subjective side, and this is the objective side. And what Hume does is he says that these ideas are put together by principles of association. 
Okay, so we form complex ideas by principles of association. One such complex idea is that of causality. Because Hume argues there's three features of causality, temporal priority, spatial contiguity, so a cause is temporally prior to its effect, cause and effect are spatially contiguous, but the one thing that's missing here is necessary connection. Okay, and he says, we can never have an impression of necessary connection. We can have an impression of spatial, uh, temporal priority, spatial contiguity. We can never have an impression of necessary connection. So it's not something derived from an object. It's something that we insert by our principle of association. And why do we do it? Because our impressions are regular over time, constantly conjoined events. Uh, and so we add in the necessary connection. And that's, cause of, that's his account of causality. Here's my problem. My problem is with the empiricist setup here. Because on this account, we have objects which give us impressions, and those impressions are worked up into ideas. Ideas um, are faint copies of impressions, which are copies of objects. That means that the content of experience is not the content of thought. So this is experience, and this is thought. Sort of kind of mental concepts, that sort of stuff, ideas. Content of experience is not that of thought, okay? And that was a common sort of view. Hume had that, Descartes had that, you know, both the rationalists and the empiricists had that. So we have the content of experience. It's not the content of thought. Thought involves reasons. <coughs> experience doesn't involve reasons. And here's the kicker. A belief is justified by a reason. So we're justified in our beliefs by some sort of reason. Why do you believe that? Well, because whatever reason that you can give. All right. Reasons are in the thought side of things. They're not involved in the experience side of things. So experience cannot give a justification for thought. So no empirical experience can give us a justification for empirical belief that we have because reasons are on this in this box and not here. So on Hume's empiricism, no empirical belief is justified by an empirical experience. And given that it's that empiricism which gives us his account of causality, if I can reject that empiricism, I can deny that account of causality. And I reject that empiricism because empirical experiences can't justify empirical beliefs, which I think is a, a reductio against Hume. <coughs> uh, there's a reason I brought up Mackey rather than Hume. I think okay. that the better way of understanding Hume would be to erase the line Mm -hmm. Erase object in the arrow. Mm -hmm. That's it. We don't have objects, so yeah, no. According to Hume, that's why I tried to focus on saying. Yeah. So, so it's more of kind of a Barclayan sort of yeah. Probably not knowledgeable enough about Barclay to say it. But I mean, my, my point is that forget any particular epistemology you attach it to. The theory of causation is the thing I wanted to focus on. Yeah, but I think that theory of causation is derived from a denial that we do have objects which exert conceptual constraints in our thought. And so we can see conceptual features of objects such as acting potency and all the rest. That might be a root for sure, but wouldn't you say that there are other ways of adopting different theory of causation than, you don't have to start with Aquinas' epistemology and this thing of causation in order to do so with Hume. But I do think that uh, post-Humean accounts such as those adopted by Mackey um, are wedded to empiricist assumptions about thought and reality. So that if we can reject those assumptions, we can set aside that metaphysics. Kind of, kind of not. I mean, Quine is going to reject this whole paradigm as well, like being good, good company. Mm -hmm. he's, he's definitely not deriving his account of causation from Hume. So, 
Yeah. Uh, That's why I didn't want to focus on any particular person's epistemology. I'm just saying, like, sitting here, suppose I had this view of causation, <coughs> wouldn't that be a problem? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have a difficult degree with you, Janet. I do think it's the epistemological concerns that generate those views of causations. Um, Quine is an interesting one because I do think Quine has this kind of epistemic outlook as well. So, I mean, putting it back to you then, like, what's, what's like the best positive reason for adopting the different view of causation, you can start wherever you want yeah. epistemically. I think we need to defend epistemic realism that um, experience carries, experience is a conscious activity which carries with it conceptual content. So objects of experience um, have conceptual features to them which can be recognized in experience. So if we can recognize active potency in experience, the object discloses that to us. And so we can analyze objects in terms of active potency. And in doing so, then we can see how one object can act upon the potentiality of another object and get us um, causality as a derivation of some kind of actuality. Um, I, th I think a lot of that hinges on just epistemic realism. Not too sure. I just, I don't mean to just go back and forth with you. This is a Q&A after all. Okay, okay. Up at the back here. Yeah. I find it hard to accept, if I understand you correctly, mm -hmm. that if we had a shared experience here, if God came down and spoke to us for 10 minutes, supernatural yeah. spend 10 minutes with us here. That experience would surely affect our ideas going forward. Absolutely. But also our capacity to believe. Absolutely, yeah. But I thought you said otherwise just now. No, no, it, experience. You said experience couldn't affect our beliefs and ideas. For an empiricist, yeah. Experience cannot justify an empirical thought. But I, I'm rejecting empiricism. I'm rejecting that view. Well, you, you accept what I'm suggesting, that if something Major is a supernatural or divine mm -hmm. event where yep. it happened here, we all share it. It would seriously affect our ideas and our beliefs. Absolutely. All ideas and concepts are drawn from experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have one minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much to for an amazing talk. And thank you to everyone for contributing to such a lively debate. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.